Good morning. Before I get started, I want to take just a moment to express my gratitude for the many prayers that have been sent up for me and my family during this uh, whole transition. Uh, Please keep them coming. (laughs) I also want to give praise to God for the grace that he's shown to me through this body and through Bob in the midst of all of this transition. I cannot think of a single thing that Bob, the other elders, or any of you could have done to make this easier or better for me and my family, and I earnestly appreciate that. I doubt that any man moving into this kind of role is as blessed for situation as I am. I've also been marvelously blessed to sit under Bob's teaching for 26 years. And a good part of my approach to the scriptures themselves has come from watching and learning from him. I will always consider my brother Bob to be my mentor, my trusted counselor, and my beloved brother. One of the greatest blessings for me in this transition is knowing that he's going to still be part of my life and part of the life of this body. All right, first message. I guess this is official. I, uh, I decided that for my first 11-week series, I would just talk about myself. <laughs> I'm 55, so I've broken it up into 11 five-year chunks. And today we'll do the first five years along with a few hundred family photos. That is as close as I'll ever get to an April Fool's joke. All right. Seriously, the focus of my message uh, to kind of launch this thing for me is very simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. I cannot conceive of a better topic to start with. Of course, the gospel is not merely a topic of Scripture. It is the topic of Scripture. It's both the milk and the meat of the Word of God. As we discussed recently at the men's retreat, it is the gospel that unites us. It is the gospel that defines our mission, our reason and our purpose for still being here on this earth consuming air. The word gospel means good news. And the good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There is no message like it in this universe. My intent this morning is to try to accomplish two things. First, to closely examine a wonderful passage that clearly lays out the good news of Jesus Christ by which we as sinners are made righteous in the eyes of our holy God. And secondly, to share with you how God brought that amazing message to bear in my life personally. That's the one thing about me that God might use to draw someone else to his son and to be an encouragement to this body. 1 Corinthians 15 is the great passage about the promise of resurrection that God has made to us, a promise he's made to us based on the fact that his son Jesus Christ has been raised. Next week, we're going to dive very, very uh, deeply into that issue of the resurrection in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. 
But this marvelous chapter begins in verses 1 through 11 with a very direct statement by Paul regarding the content of the gospel itself. He says in the first two verses, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand. And then he says, by which also you were saved. You are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, it's been rightly pointed out that in the broadest sense, the term gospel applies to everything concerning the life, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And that's a lot of information. But Paul makes it clear in these first two verses that he's zeroing in on that which is the heart of the gospel. Indeed, on that which must be believed in order for us to be saved. That which also causes us to stand as believers. By the way, that part at the very end of the verse, of verse 2, where it says, unless you believed in vain, Paul explains very specifically in verse 14 of this chapter, when he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. But as we'll see this morning, (laughs) he takes that possibility and he shoots it completely down. And he makes it clear that there is no such possibility. In verses 3 through 8, after he says that the gospel is that which saves and causes us to stand, he drills down and he explains what that message is. And he does so by presenting four that clauses. You see the word that underlined four times up there. And he presents four propositions saying first that this is the message which is of first importance. Here are those four propositions. First, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Second, that He was buried. Third, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And finally, that He appeared to a bunch of people. To Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, And then to more than 500 people, most of whom, Paul says, were still alive at the time that he wrote this epistle. And lastly, he appeared, Paul says, to Paul, as if to one untimely born. Now, you'll see on the first and third propositions, if you go back to the verse, that he points out that these things are according to the Scriptures. And I've kind of put a highlight here on the first and third proposition. But I want to point out that as I see it, all three of those first ones are, he's saying, are according to the Scriptures. The second and third are really one verse, one point, uh, that Christ was buried and was raised, according to the Scriptures. Now, why is that important? Well, Paul is saying that these first three declarations about Jesus, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, have a precedent in Scripture already that God has already spoken about these things. And indeed, it certainly could be argued that when Paul uses the term Scriptures here, he's referring to the Old Testament primarily, that which was already received and circulated among the church. 
The last of the four propositions, Paul says, is based on his own witness, as well as the witness of many others, including apostles and a multitude of more than 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ all at one time. If we look at these at these four propositions, we find the heart of the good news concerning Jesus Christ. This is the message you must know and believe in order to stand righteous, acceptable in the eyes of God. So we, hopefully we're all paying attention to what God is presenting here through Paul. First thing I want you to see is in Paul's first declaration about what's of first importance, and it is the first word of the first point, and that word is Christ. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, that's not Jesus' last name. It is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament term Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one of God. And it is a term that is absolutely loaded with significance. In John chapter 1, when Andrew, uh, the brother of, uh, hang on, let me move, yeah, I've already passed that one. When Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, met Jesus for the first time, Andrew had been a follower of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist the second time saw Jesus approaching, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew, after spending some time then with with the Lord, went to his brother, Simon Peter, and he said, Peter, we'd found the Messiah. We'd found the Messiah. That's, That's an Old Testament term. And then the text adds, which translated means Christ. Christ is the New Testament equivalent of Messiah in the Old Testament. So what does that mean? Well, the Jews of Jesus' day understood very well what the term Messiah meant and what the term Christ meant, even though most of them refused to acknowledge that it applied to Jesus. The Christ, the Messiah, is the one whose coming had been promised through the Old Testament prophets from generation to generation. In Psalm chapter 2, a powerful messianic psalm of David, written a thousand years before Jesus came. It says that the nations, the kingdoms of the earth, would oppose the one that God called his anointed. And the word for anointed there is Messiah. And God also in that passage refers to this anointed one as his king and as his son. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, the prophet tells us that this promised one would be the descendant of David who would come to us as a child and who would one day reign over the entire earth in perfect righteousness and justice. Micah, another prophet, said that this promised one would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And he said that His goings forth were from eternity past. And it's not something you say about a human king, a typical king. This one who was promised has existed forever. Now, all of these prophecies that we've just looked at 
were made hundreds of years before Jesus, some of them almost a thousand years before Jesus came down from heaven, took on flesh, lived a sinless life, was crucified, buried, and resurrected. Jesus is the Christ. According to the scriptures that have been presented through the prophets for ages before Jesus came to the earth, He is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David. He is fully God, fully man. He is the King of kings. And He's the one through whom redemption, salvation is given. All of those things are already presented. Even before Christ came in the flesh. The second point in that first proposition, the first is He's the Christ. The second is that He died for our sins. (laughs) Now, for me, that particular declaration completely eluded me until God took the blinders off my eyes. I had heard hundreds of times that Jesus died for our sins. I said it, but I didn't have a clue what it meant. Did it mean that he died to show us what it looks like to be righteous so that we could follow in his footsteps and become righteous in the eyes of God? Did it mean that he was showing us how to humbly respond when people revile and persecute us and that somehow that would make us acceptable to God? Was he meeting us halfway somehow? Well, we've already seen that the term Christ was explained by scriptures that had been presented for a long period of time. And the answer to what it means biblically that Christ died for our sins is also clearly, clearly presented to us even before Christ came. The clearest passage, some of you know where I'm going here, the clearest passage I can think of in that, along those lines is Isaiah 53. The greatest passage on substitution in the whole Bible. Christ in our place. In that passage, Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant of God who would be sacrificed by God to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. Verses 4 through 6 explain precisely what it means that this one died for our sins. Isaiah speaks in the past tense called the prophetic perfect to indicate the certainty that this prophecy would be accomplished exactly as stated. And he says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being, our shalom, our peace, fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have turned astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity, the sin of every one of us, to be put on him. Substitution. Crystal clear. Later on in the same passage, a few verses later, Isaiah says that the sacrifice of this, of this promised servant of God was a guilt offering. In the Old Testament, the, the sin and guilt offerings were the offerings to provide atonement, payment for sin from the hand of God. Israel wasn't giving those animals to God. God was giving them to them as a picture, a foreshadowing of this one guilt offering. Isaiah says repeatedly in this passage that by this one sacrifice, God's servant would bear upon himself the sin of God's people whom he came to save. 
The promised Savior was tortured and pierced through, as this prophecy says, to pay the penalty that we owed to God for our sins. And because of that perfect sacrifice, we who place our faith only in him have peace with God for all time. Another thing to point out is that when Jesus died, he actually died. I sat in the parlor last week with a man who insisted that Jesus didn't actually die. Um, But the Gospel of John, who was there at the foot of the cross and saw the whole thing, uh, in the Gospel, John chapter 19, verse 34, the Apostle John says one of the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, pierced the side of Jesus with his spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. That spear pierced the pericardium around the heart of Jesus Christ and pierced the heart of Christ itself, and he was dead. This is critically important because the pouring out of Jesus' life's blood is what was required for this guilt offering to be effective. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it's also critically important because the validity of the resurrection depends on it. Our resurrection depends on the fact that Jesus' resurrection was real. We'll talk more about that next week. But Christ indeed died. The next proposition, Christ was buried. And again, we go back, according to the scriptures, we go back to Isaiah 53, which, by the way, Isaiah 53 contains the whole gospel, 700 years before Christ came. Okay. It says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. He was slain beside two thieves, and he was considered a criminal himself. He should have been buried in a pauper's grave, a criminal's tomb. But it says, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, the Father put the body of Jesus Christ in the grave of a wealthy man. In John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42, we find that that's exactly what happened. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin Council, a wealthy Jewish leader, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for the fear of the Jews, came to Pontius Pilate and he asked that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted him permission. And so it says he came and he took the body with a guy named Nicodemus, who's talked about in chapter 3 of John, and he's also a wealthy leader of the Jews. They took the body and they they gathered up about a 100 pounds of precious Spices, myrrh, and aloes. And they bound up Jesus in linen wrappings along with those spices. So they mummified the body of Christ in over a hundred pounds of wrappings. According to the burial custom of the Jews. And then they put him in a new tomb. Now you couldn't just go out and grab somebody else's tomb. This was Joseph's tomb. It was the tomb of a rich man. So we see... With 700 years separation, the prophecy made and the prophecy fulfilled. These things are all according to the scriptures. And Christ was raised on the third day. Again, the resurrection of the Christ was promised through the prophets long before it came to pass. And once again, I take you back to Isaiah 53. Look at what this says. This is after it says that that Jesus was 
sacrificed in our place. That he was our substitute. It says, the Lord was pleased, pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, and again, the guilt offering has to die. And then it says, he will see his offspring. Jesus would have descendants, spiritual descendants. He, the Father, will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And then it says a little later, I, the Father, will allot to him, my servant, a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty, the spoils, with the strong. Why? Because he poured out himself to death. Now, how can that happen if Jesus did not live after his death? It can't. This is a prophecy of the resurrection. The promises that God the Father made to made regarding his righteous servant and to his righteous servant, Messiah, could only be fulfilled if Christ lived after he died. In the book of Acts, Peter and then a little later, Paul, both refer back to Psalm 16, another Davidic psalm. And they say that that psalm prophesies the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but if I were someone who didn't understand what the Bible was about and I saw these things, it would get my attention. That God, long before Jesus came, told what he was going to accomplish and gave all kinds of detail about how he would accomplish it. In Acts chapter 2, Peter speaks to a multitude of, uh, of, of people gathered at Jerusalem on the, uh, the day of Pentecost. And he says, and by the way, this was read this morning by my brother John Feltz. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he, he goes back to Psalm 16. He says, David, King David, says of this one, of Jesus, and look at what he says, Thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. He says, Peter says, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and he's still, he's still buried. So he says David wasn't talking about himself here. But because he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn with, to him with an oath to seat one of his own descendants upon the throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Jesus Christ was raised and the resurrected Christ was seen by many. Again, no small point. After he was raised, Jesus appeared to a multitude. First, it says, including Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 people at one time. 
most of whom Paul says here were still alive at the time he wrote this epistle to the Corinthians. These are people who could have read this and then come forward and said, that's not what happened. But instead, not only was there no one denying this, many of these people, the early saints, went to their deaths insisting that the resurrected Christ had been witnessed by them. Indeed, the people that Paul names here, Peter and James, they died for that declaration, as did he. Acts 1 says that, and I'm sorry, I missed that slide, but Acts 1 said that he appeared over a period of more than 40 days, a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So this wasn't just a, you know, happened real fast and then it was over. Now, why did Paul's make such a huge issue out of the fact that Jesus' resurrection was witnessed by so many? In fact, that declaration gets more real estate here in the print than any of the other things that he's just said. Why is that so important? Well, Romans chapter 1, Paul says this about the significance of our Lord's resurrection. He says, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a lot in that statement, but what he's saying is that the resurrection is the proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the son of God. Now let's put all that together. Here is what we must believe in order to be saved. This is what we must believe in order to hold fast and to stand firm so that we can grow in godliness as believers. First, Jesus is the Christ. He is the the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, fully God and perfect man. He is the King of kings. He is the one through whom God promised to bring about redemption. And He is the one who will come yet again to judge all mankind and to reign over the entire earth in perfect righteousness and justice from then on and forevermore. He is the one who died for our sins. Guys, we are all sinners, lost and dead in our sins, helpless to make ourselves acceptable to our holy God. But Jesus took our place on the cross. He bore upon himself the eternal penalty for sins, and he paid the debt for all of our sins, past, present, and future, in full, in one sacrifice. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, a fact that was witnessed by a multitude. And his resurrection proves that he is indeed the very Son of God and that his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. It was payment in full. And the last word that Jesus uttered on the cross, it's really one word, but it means it is finished. This is the gospel by which we are saved. If you believe these things, if you trust in Jesus alone as your Savior, then you are made acceptable to God forever, not because of what you did, 
but 100% because of what he did. I want to share a bit of my own story with you based on all that we've just seen. And this is, the first thing was of, of first importance. This is of far less importance, but hopefully useful, useful to God. I've been very blessed over the years to hear how his story unfolded in many of your lives. And uh, so I pray that in the same way, sharing these things with you, how he worked his miracle of redemption in my life might give you even more cause to praise him. I'll start with my beginnings, but only in order to move quickly to the beginning of my real life. The evening 39 years ago this month, when God opened the eyes of my heart to the greatest thing that I or anyone else can ever know. I'm a third generation Texan on one side, second generation on the other. So I say I'm fixing to a lot. I was born in San Antonio, but I did most of my growing up in a Houston suburb called Aleph. Anybody know where that is? Yeah, some of you do. Back then, A-Leaf was out in the sticks. And my graduating class had 245 students. I was a very earnest kid. Serious. I was a religious kid. I was in a church where most of the Sunday service came straight out of a liturgy book that was not the Bible. When I was 13 years old, I went through what we called a confirmation class to learn about the history and the beliefs of my church. Toward the end of that year-long class, the vicar, the guy that was teaching it, asked all of us, all these kids a question. He said, what is it that you want most in life? And the answers that he got were all over the map. Some of the kids said they wanted to be successful in business. Some said that they wanted to find a, a great husband or wife. One kid said he just wanted to have fun. Now, I'm sure the vicar was real encouraged by that. I simply said when he got to me that I wanted to know how to really be acceptable to God. And to my surprise, he looked dumbfounded for a moment. And then after a few seconds, he responded by saying, well, we all do the best we can to do as God tells us, and we hope we get it right. This is called the blind leading the blind. But I set out to get it right. And as a small part of that effort, I became an altar boy in that same church shortly after I was confirmed. I wore a robe. It wasn't as pretty as the pastor's robe, but it, it was okay. I walked, walked up the aisle just ahead of the pastor with the, the lighter, and I lit the candles on the altar most Sundays. And then at the end of the service, I reverently went and extinguished the candles with the little bell on the end of the lighter. Now, surely that had to impress God's son, didn't it? In my sophomore year of high school, and this is a public school, mind you, God put me in a biology class taught by a man named Mike Turnage. Mike was a piece of work. He loved all of his students, but he didn't put up with any nonsense in his class. One day I spewed out some really snarky wisecrack, and he came over to my desk and he literally put me in a headlock, lifted me up out of my chair, walked me out into the hall, still in a headlock, And after he got me out the door, he released the headlock, never said a word to me through the whole incident, and then he went back into the class and finished his class session while I stood there very embarrassed in the hall, not not knowing even if I was supposed to go to the principal's office or what was supposed to happen next. 
Nowadays, a teacher might get sued for something like that. But for me, it was a very timely and very constructive humiliation. And it got my attention. Even when I was still an unbeliever, I grew to respect and to love Mike more than any teacher I'd ever had. He was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of the Word of God. He was also a very able advocate of creation science. You'd actually see him in some of the old Moody Science films. And because of him, to this day, I still love talking to young people about evolution and creation. My brother Brad has heard all that before. (laughs) In my junior year of high school, Mike somehow convinced the PTA of our public school to let him take a group of his past and current biology students on a backpacking trip in the Guadalupe Mountains in northwest Texas. And he organized the trip through a Christian camping organization called Camp Penile. Any of you guys know the names Gordon and Alice Whitelock? Okay, David and Rosie Whitelock, these are great people. These are people who were very serious about the furtherance of the gospel. (laughs) I discovered a few things that week. First, I discovered I loved hardcore backpacking, where you take a pack and you put in it everything that you're going to use for that that period of time that you're climbing those mountains. Uh, There are no creature comforts except what's in your pack. I heard the gospel several times during that trip from people who had my attention because of the quality of their lives and because of their obvious love for me. Nonetheless, when I came back home from the trip, the blinders were still on my eyes. I was still trying to get it right in my own power. But fortunately for me, Mike's strategy did not end with that trip. He immediately started a weekly Bible study at the home of one of the believing kids who had gone on the trip, and I started going to that study from day one. Mike would generally just ask us what we wanted to talk about, and then he would go to only one source to show us the answers, and that source was the Bible. He always took the time to show us the context and the flow of of thought or argument through each passage that he cited. It used to amaze me to see how easily he would find passage that directly related to the questions that we asked. And it became clear to me quickly that the Bible speaks to real and important issues and that even though it's an ancient document, it is exceedingly relevant to real life. This is before I was a believer. I listened and learned week after week and I was very intrigued by what I was learning from the Bible and I was very intrigued when I heard Mike and these other kids talk about their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I was also intrigued by the amazing bond that they seemed to have with each other. I didn't have those things, and I wanted them. Well, one night right after the study, Mike and a recent high school grad named Rocky Schofield took me aside after most of the kids had left, and they said, Tom, you've been here a long time, but we don't think you get it. (laughs) How's that for, for honesty? And then Rocky asked me a question I'd never been asked. He said, you know that... That car you drive, and for Bob's sake, it was a 68 Impala Coupe 327 Rochester Quadrajet. (laughs) He said, that car, if you were in that car on the way home tonight, and you got in a wreck, and you died, and you stood before God, and he asked you, what right do you have to enter into my presence? 
what would you say? And I spit out the answer the vicar had told me. I said, I hope God would see enough good in my life to find me acceptable. But I knew even as those words left my mouth that they were groundless. I knew that I hadn't even met my own standard of righteousness, much less the standard of a holy God. And my life was really an emotional mess, riddled with anxiety that sometimes made me physically ill. But I could not bring myself to be honest with God about what was going on under the surface in my life because I couldn't stand the idea that I was not acceptable to him. Well, that night, Mike and Rocky took me to the Word, and they dispelled any illusions that I had about my standing in the eyes of God. In fact, they completely blew them away. Rocky started by asking me if I really thought God wanted me to spend the rest of my life guessing how I would spend eternity. And he took me to 1 John 5, verses 10 through 13. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. And the witness is this. The witness of God is this. That God has given us eternal life and the life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to those of you who believe in the name of of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And he asked me again, according to that last verse, does God want you to guess how you'll spend eternity? And I looked at it and I said, well, it looks like it says we're supposed to know. And then he said, and who does it say is supposed to know? I looked at it and I said, you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And then Mike, my biology teacher, said, well, let's talk about that for a minute. He took me to the book of Romans, and he started with Romans chapter 3. That's not advancing, so let's see if... uh, Steve, if you can maybe flip that around and just hit the down arrow. There you go. Thank you. In this passage, if you look at some of the highlighted content... It says in very, very clear terms, all are under sin. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good as God measures good, not even one. There is no one who even seeks after God as he must be sought. And then in the, in the next passage, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And he showed me especially in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now these were major revelations to me. And then he took me to Romans 6.23. And he showed me the first half, for the wages of sin is death. And what are wages? It's what you earn, right? And he said, it's not just physical death. He said, throughout Scripture, ever since Adam and Eve first sinned, 
The death that we have earned by our sin is an eternal spiritual death. It is condemnation, separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power forever. Wow. We may not like that, but that is exactly what God's Word declares. And then He showed me the second half of Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I later came to the conclusion that the two most important commas in the universe are the ones between Romans 3.23 and 24. Go to that next one there, Steve. I put it up there. You can barely see the highlighting in the middle, but those are the commas, red and blue. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, comma, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is amazing. God presents us with a free gift that's the exact opposite of what He tells us we deserve. We've earned eternal death, but for us who believe in Jesus Christ, He grants eternal life. He makes it really pretty simple. They also showed me John 3.16, which I already knew. In fact, I had it memorized, but I had never seen it. God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way. I learned that from Bob. That he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And finally, he showed me John 5.24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has already passed out of death and into life. Is that cool? (laughs) They asked me what I thought about all of that. And I said simply, this is the truth. They asked me if I would take God at his word, if I would trust only in his son to make me right with him. And in today's parlance, I was thinking, that's so 30 seconds ago. Because I already had. God had taken the blinders off of my eyes as I was reading these passages with them. And I didn't merely think these things were true. I knew them to be true. They asked me to pray and tell God what I thought about all of it. And I did. They didn't put words in my mouth. They just asked me to tell God what I thought. I wasn't on any kind of emotional high that evening even though it sometimes makes me emotional to talk about it now, I just had a very sober realization, indeed a certainty, that this was the truth. It was the first thing I had ever heard, and it is the only thing I will ever hear that allows me to be honest with God about the darkness of the sin in my heart and about His holiness. I knew without a doubt that I no longer had to pretend I was someone I am not. I knew without a doubt that Jesus Christ had paid the penalty for my sin that I could never, ever pay. I knew without a doubt that he had given me eternal life. And you know what? I knew those things more certainly than I knew that the sun would rise the next morning. And this gospel has been the most certain thing in my life ever since.
I also knew that from that day forward, my life was not about me. It was about my Savior. If you're here today and you do not know with confidence how you'll spend eternity, I pray with all my heart that you won't shove this under the rug. I pray that you'll take God at his word today. We don't do altar calls. No one's going to ask you to raise a hand. I ask that you will simply trust in Jesus Christ as your one and only Savior, believing that he alone has paid the penalty, the eternal penalty for your sin so that you can stand forgiven, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ forever. You can never earn that righteous standing in God's eyes. You must accept it as a free gift from his hand or remain in your sins. Those are the only two options. I'm going to pray, and I just ask you to stay with me for a moment after I pray so I can tell you a little bit about what's coming up next week. Loving Father, I cannot begin to say thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. I can't thank you, Father, for taking me and plucking me out of the domain of darkness and planting me firmly in the kingdom of your beloved Son because I deserved nothing except condemnation. I thank you that your Holy Spirit, through these two dear brothers who love me enough to confront me about the truth, convicted my heart of sin and righteousness and judgment, and laid me bare before you so that I could take your gift. I pray, Lord, that if there are any here today who have not simply taken you at your word and trusted in your Son as Savior, that that person, he or she, would would do so today, that today would be the day of salvation. I ask this in the name of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.